invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, if you will. John, chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse 38. John eleven thirty eight. Hear God's word. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there, there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let me lead us in a final prayer. Well, God, we, we need spiritual nourishment. You've told us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we pray that whatever condition we are in this morning, that you might nourish our souls through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When our son, our disabled son, Stephen, was born uh, over 13 years ago, I began uh, asking questions um, internally and in prayer that I had thought about before but never that seriously about healing, miraculous healing, and so forth. And as we would have guest preachers here at conferences and so forth, I would ask them for recommendations on, on books or articles to read. And... Um, John Piper and others that were here, they had breakfast at our house, and I asked him, what, what do you recommend reading about divine miraculous healing from a Reformed perspective? And to my surprise and disappointment, most of these speakers said, I don't have anything I can recommend. John Piper's interesting comment was, you will find everything you can divide into two categories. They'll either say we're in control or God's in control. He said that will be the dividing line in, in the writings. Frank Barker, uh, who had uh, just retired from being pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, he was here, and I asked him the question, and he had an answer. He said, Chip, there's a book that's out of print now. It was written back in the 1930s by a man named Frost. He said, if you can get a hold of that book, that's the book to read. Well, I, uh, to my surprise, found out the book at that time had just been put back into print, and so I got one. And I got it on a Friday afternoon, Uh, and went over to the health club, making health club, and read it on a Stairmaster in about 90 minutes. I didn't last 90 minutes on the Stairmaster. But I had never, ever read anything that so clarified what I think is, what I've come to believe is the biblical teaching on, uh, we call it miraculous healing. All healing is divine, but miraculous is, is any this The man that wrote this was a co-worker with the, the missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. Um, in fact, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote the, the uh, 
forward, and she says, I doubt whether you will find a more sensible and balanced treatment anywhere. So I commend it to you. I went on Amazon last night. It's there for $9.99. It's still in print or reprinted. Now, the miracles of Christ were designed to prove that he was the Messiah. That's the starting point. They were designed to prove that he was the Messiah. He was the one who had been spoken about in the Old Testament by the prophets. He was on earth as the fulfillment of those prophecies. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, that great day shortly after the ascension of Christ into heaven when thousands of people were saved, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So the wonders and signs, the miracles that Jesus performed were testimony to the fact that he was the Messiah. Christ, from the records we have in the Gospels, appeared to only have performed two miracles in the first year of his public ministry. Most were done in the second and third years of his public ministry, and we find those greatly diminishing as he came to the end of his public ministry. Almost none toward the end with the healing of the ear of the, the guard that when Peter had cut the, the man's ear off there in the garden of Gethsemane. We have 30, 35 miracles in the scriptures during the New Testament, 35 miracles recorded in Jesus' ministry. His miracles had to do with the bodies of people, either from the standpoint of maintaining life, such as providing food, or from the standpoint of healing life-threatening diseases or casting out demons, or making the blind to see, or the deaf to hear, or the dumb to speak, or the lame to walk. He did not perform a single miracle in judgment. You never find where Jesus called down fire on a house or anything like that. Never a miracle carried out in judgment. The dominant theme was compassion. Compassion in all of the miracles is part of every miracle he performed. But compassion was not the primary point of his working the miracles. His primary purpose was to establish the fact that he was the Messiah. That's why when John the Baptist was arrested, before he was later executed, uh, it tells us in Matthew 11, when John was in prison, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? In other words, as John was in prison, he sent some of his followers to Jesus to find out, Are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? Or should we continue to look? And he, and he sends message back and says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That was quoting from the book of Isaiah. So he wanted John to be reassured, I am the Messiah. And my works back it up, because these were prophesied long ago. Philip Yancey, a number of years ago, about 20 years ago, wrote a, a book entitled Disappointment with God. Now, perhaps many of us here at least purchased, were, were one of the millions of people who purchased one of those books. Hopefully you read it. It's a good book, by the way. 
And it touched a nerve at that time. More books since then have been written that deal with similar subjects. But at that time, it was very unique. Because he dealt with the fact that people who follow Christ, who believe in God, often are disappointed. We feel God has let us down. We feel he hadn't answered prayers. And there's a growing disappointment in some of our lives and a growing even anger that leads to resentment. And through many candid interviews in that book, Disappointment with God, he dealt with three questions. And here were the questions. Is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? Is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? Because we have expectations of how God will work in our lives, of when God will work in our lives, and the ways that we expect him to work. And when those expectations are not fulfilled, we're often disillusioned and discouraged and often downright mad. There probably is not a week that goes by that we don't read or hear of or experience firsthand some immense problem, pain, tragedy. And we ask, God, don't you know? Are you here? Don't you care? This account has four scenes to it about Lazarus, and we find those questions throughout. Let's just walk through this. I, did, I didn't read the entire passage, but I'm going to reference it. And I'm going to read parts of it. Scene one is in the first three verses. And that's that the news about Lazarus's, Lazarus's, you try to say it, Lazarus's illness arrives to Jesus. Jesus, it says in, in verse one, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus and his disciples are on the east side of the Jordan River. If you look in the map in the Bible, you've got the Sea of Galilee. You've got the Mediterranean Ocean over here. You've got um, you know, the, the, the Jordan River that runs down to the Dead Sea. So they're over on that side, and they've gone there for a reason. Chapter 10 tells us that Jesus and his disciples had gone to the east side of the Jordan River to elude the Jewish leaders who were ready to kill him because he claimed to be God. We read about that in the previous chapter. Now, while they're on the east side of the Jordan, news arrives that Lazarus, who is a close friend of Jesus, is sick. And the message is sent by Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus is very close to the family. They were good friends. And Lazarus' illness is obvious very serious, or Martha and Mary would not have sent word basically asking, requesting, summoning Jesus to come back to the area where there's a price on his head. But they appeal to him on the basis of love. He whom you love is sick. They knew how dear Lazarus was to Jesus. And so they assumed Jesus would come at once, immediately, but he doesn't. Instead, not only does he not drop what he's doing when he receives word, he waits two more days after he receives word. In fact, the implication is he stays there and doesn't go because of Lazarus' condition. In verse 4, he tells his disciples that Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, the disciples don't understand what he's talking about at that point. And then verse 7 tells us after two days, two more days have passed, Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. 
So we're going back. We're going back to the place where there are people waiting to take Jesus' life. And the disciples obviously are less than enthusiastic. And we can only imagine they were saying, Lord, don't you remember why we came here and what the situation is back there? So Jesus counters their objections. We read in verses is 9 through 10. He says, Are there not 12 days of daylight, 12 hours of daylight? He who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. So Jesus is using an analogy to compare doing God's will to walking in daylight. Perhaps as the disciples are pondering this last statement, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They're still confused. So now he spells it out as clearly as possible in verse 14. Lazarus is dead. Okay, the point's clear. In fact, in verse 15, we have an odd statement where Jesus is saying he's glad, not about Lazarus' death, but he's glad because this will be an opportunity for a supreme demonstration of power that would testify that he was the Son of God. And it would confirm them. It would confirm the disciples in their faith. Do you realize that God can and he does use problems and pain and even tragedies in our lives to minister to other people that we may not know about? Now, most of us, if you have a brown church, if you profess your faith in Christ, if you have some knowledge of the Bible, say, yeah, yeah, I understand that. I have a dear friend. He's 60 years old now. But when he was in college, he was a student at the University of Alabama, and he and two other students were driving from the University of Alabama to Auburn University to attend a conference sponsored by the Navigators, that international ministry. They were driving on a two-lane highway, and he, the driver was Aaron Fleming. Aaron is a pastor in Montgomery. I don't know who the passenger was in the front seat, and my friend was in the middle back seat. They were, he had leaned up, to listen to something that was coming from a, a, a tape player in the, the front. And he had leaned up like that, and they were going over a hill, and another car was crossing on a solid yellow line. And as they came over the hill, both cars, the cars went like this to miss each other and hit at combined speeds. One car was going 55, one was 65, so about 120 miles an hour. A woman died at the scene, the woman in the other car, um, And then two people died as a result of it. One right there, one later. My friend was in the hospital for a long, long time. And he, back in the dormitory where he had lived in college, he had had talked to a a guy that lived down the hall. He had talked to him about his faith in Christ. This other guy was not a professing Christian. And my friend had told him about, uh, about how to be a Christian and why you should follow Christ and what all that meant. Well, while my friend's in the hospital, not knowing whether he'll live or die, this guy, back in college, can't quit thinking about him. And the fact that this guy had cared enough about him and now his life was in the balance, this fellow back at the dormitory comes to faith in Christ and is still walking with Christ, best I know, to this day. Now, my friend who was in the wreck would say, well, that's, you know, that's one of the positive things of great tragedy, one of the positive things that came out of that. And I would agree with him, but I would add, 
most of the time, we never know anything like that. If, we, if we're always looking for, well, this is bad for me, but it must be good for somebody else, please, Lord, let me see it, most of the time it isn't going to happen. And so, as theologians say, in heaven there will be a divine interconnection of the events from here in this life that we can't realize. The problem with so much of what happens is we cannot see the big picture. Not in this life, and we only know we hurt or we're disappointed. But this was one event where the apparent tragic death of Lazarus is going to be used to increase their faith. Now, scene two, and every scene I will not talk as much about. Scene two, the conversation with Martha and Mary. Jesus and his disciples leave on the two-day walk. They arrive on the outskirts of the small village called Bethany. There is the home of Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. And since the house is full of friends and people, Jesus waits a ways away. He sends word to them that he has arrived. And Martha comes out first. Um, She leaves the house alone. She walks out to him. And we read in verses 21 and 22 what their discussion was. It said when Martha, verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, her words are almost contradictory, but if you pray, if you are a believer, you can understand what appears to be almost a contradiction. With one part of her speech, she's saying, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? Didn't you know? Why didn't you come? But then, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Do you ever pray prayers, especially in pain, and they've got faith and disillusionment at the same time? Lord, I know you're in complete control, but why did this happen? I know that you can do what, you know, you're carrying out your will, but why why didn't you? You get the picture? There's nothing wrong with this that is that is faith and we bring our questions to God not out not that he's our servant uh, or not in a blasphemous way but we hear her struggling with the same things that any of us I assume struggle with when we are disappointed we acknowledge the truth and yet we're grappling to try and apply it to our situation so we see that with her And kind of like, where were you? Why weren't you here? Lazarus was their brother. Let's not be too harsh on Martha and Mary. They had watched him die. And her thinking was, where was God? Listen, if you, uh, many of us here have been with a family member that's died. We don't talk about it, but that in and of itself is a traumatic experience. And if you've been through it, I've been through it a number of times with family and church members, you really don't ever get over it. And the sensations, I mean, you talk about sleepless nights after follow that. So this is what they've been through. They had watched their brother, not in a hospital far away, but right there in the house. They'd at least known for several days. We don't know what it was. And not all deaths are quiet where someone looks like they just go to sleep. So we, we don't know. We can only imagine a certain level, level not only of grief but of trauma. And now look how he responds to her in verses 25 and 26. 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he's taken her words that she has said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day that he says in, in, she says in 24. And Jesus turns that theology, that doctrine, into him as a person. He's saying, I am the resurrection. Johnny Erickson Tata, who has spent since her teenage years as a quadriplegic, says her favorite verse in the Bible is Philippians 3.10. You know what that says? It says, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. She likes that because she's saying the resurrection for me will no longer be a disabled body. I told it I told this, the group at the first service, I said, I don't ever recommend movies. I don't, okay? I may mention football coaches like last week, but I don't stand up here and say, here's a movie you need to go and see. I have my reasons for that. But I want to tell you the scene from Avatar that is, if I think of that movie, I think of this scene. And I'll be surprised if hardly anyone else thinks of this. We're in Fort Lauderdale last December. The movie has come out. We're at a soccer tournament. And I take... Sarah and Rebecca, my daughters, and we go to this big theater there and right outside of Fort Lauderdale, and we see it. And the scene that meant the most to me, and I don't care about James Cameron's warped worldview, that's why I don't recommend movies, you know, just talking about this, was when the main character, when they got out of the wheelchair into the machine that transported him into the avatar, and he looks down and his feet move. That is what Johnny Erickson's talking about. That scene in that movie, and have, you know, thinking about that, and we will have in the new heavens uh, a resurrected body and no more diseases. That was it. Well, that's what, that's what Johnny Erickson is saying with that. Martha goes back to the house. She calls her sister Mary. The visitors follow her out, and Mary's response to Jesus is very similar to that of Martha's. You can read that in verse 32, but then right after that, the scene becomes very pitiful. Everybody's crying. Everybody except Jesus is very perplexed, and verses 33 and following, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. So it is a pitiful, emotionally wrenching scene with these people. That's the despair. And it uses three phrases to describe Jesus. First it says he was deeply moved in verse 33. You know that that is a term that speaks more of anger than hurt. There's anger there. He is moved toward death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. As part of the triune God, Jesus had existed not as a, in a human body when Adam and Eve were created, when they were in the garden and God had said from all these trees of the garden you may freely eat, but from this tree you must not eat for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And then our first parents did what we would have done in the same situation. They violated that prohibition, but they didn't die physically. They died spiritually. They were cut off from God at that point. They died spiritually. They hid from God. They ran from him. They took leaves and so forth because now they're shame. They use those to make clothes, to hide from one another, to hide from God. 
And you and I start off where they ended up. Ephesians says we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And so death is the enemy. Death, spiritual death, physical death. Jesus had seen the decision Adam and Eve, the choice they had made in sin and death. He'd watched the devastation that has brought on humanity ever since. It had not been part of the original plan. There's something unnatural and wrong about death. It's always an intruder. There's nothing natural about a funeral service. I don't care what anybody says, and I've led, I guess, hundreds of them by now. But it's not natural. Now, Jesus' anger is seeing the pain and the agony brought about by his enemy, death. And I love the words of B.B. Warfield at this point. He says of this this phrase about Jesus being deeply moved, he says it brought home to his consciousness the evil of death. And so he sees that. But he's also troubled, it says in verse 33. He's disoriented. He's agitated. He has just lost a good friend. Many of us here have lost good friends. I went, I don't see him here. They normally, I thought I saw Daniel. I was at the, there I see you, Daniel. The dedication service of Natalie is, was a dedication service? It was the, whatever, when y'all opened up out there a month or two ago. And there are a couple of hundred people there or more. And I see a guy I haven't seen in about four or five years. And uh, we're walking through, looking at the beautiful facility. And I see him, and I said, how are you? And the first words out of his mouth, he said, I'm not well at all. I just lost a good friend of mine. He named him. I didn't know him. And we've been friends since, since childhood. And he just died the other day. He said, I'm having a hard time. That's what Jesus was feeling at this point. When it says he was troubled, from all indication, he was feeling the grief. So if you think God is frozen toward us or hardened toward us or stone-like, that's why Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. So he's... He's angry at at death. He is troubled with his personal grief and the grief around him. And then verse 35 tells us he burst into tears. He wept. He was overcome with sorrow at this time. And this continues all the way as they walk to the tomb. And we can only assume it was a pretty long walk. You wouldn't have had a cemetery right next to your house in those days. In fact, it's such that those around him say, Behold how he loved him. That's in verse 36. Now that brings us to scene 3, and this is at the tomb. Verse 38 tells us they arrive at the tomb. We assume it's like we have in North Georgia and limestone kind of carved out of there. His his body is in there. It's covered up with a, a large stone at the entrance. Jesus gives a command in verse 39 to remove the stone. He's been dead four days. And the family says, we're not, you know, remove the stone when somebody's been dead four days in this environment and so forth. This was just not a resuscitation that happens at the ER at the medical center. This is not what some of you who are doctors and nurses and others do, perhaps even on a weekly basis where you do CPR and you pump that chest and ensure that blood's flowing to the brain For how long? Maybe 20 minutes? Maybe 30 minutes? This is four days. The man is dead. The body is decomposing. Jesus bows his head in prayer. He lifts it up to heaven, to his Father in heaven, and then he makes this glorious call. 
as Matthew Henry says, that he named Lazarus, otherwise every person in a tomb, everybody would have come forth. But verses 41 and 42 are insightful. It says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Remember, the miracle is to show that he's the Messiah. He caused Lazarus to come forth, and there in full view of his two sisters who had nursed him in his final days, who had been with him when he died, who had mourned now for four days, and the men and women who had prepared his body with spices and cloths, things that were customary of that day. There he stands. He comes forth, and he stands in full view of all of them. Scene four, the response of the people. Now, we may sit here and think, boy, if I saw something like that, I'd believe. I mean, don't you think that if suddenly those doors were to open up in the back of the sanctuary and, and this person begins walking down the aisle and it's a person that all of us know we buried 10 years ago at Rose Hill Cemetery and that person begins walking down the aisle and spoke to us, and we saw and recognized, and we all gave... The, wouldn't we think, man, the hardest atheist would believe? Mm-mm. That, that's not what happens here. Here's what happens. John tells us how they responded in verses 45 and 46. After that... After the resurrection, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Many, I'm thankful for that word, many who had come there. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You had many who believed, I, and from reading this, I think most, but not all. I've told you before of when I was a young boy and I was at a local YMCA in my hometown um, playing basketball and there was a fellow who taught gymnastics there and he was an, an agnostic and he would talk to a Christian friend of mine very openly about why he couldn't believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible and I was standing there and I was listening to one of their conversations when the fellow went he kind of gazed off and said but if they ever find that ark he meant Noah's ark he meant if they ever find that ark, I'm in trouble, or I'm going to have to believe. You know what I think? If they, for sure, if they had found it the next week, I don't think it would have made one bit of difference. Because we see here, somebody back from the dead, there, there's no question. It's not as though they didn't believe what had happened. They just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. No one disputed what had just taken place. So there is willingness to believe, and then there's unwillingness to believe. In fact, we read in verse 53. I'll read it to you. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This was the miracle that basically sealed the determination of uh, the enemies of Jesus, that now he was going to die because of, of this miracle. You also can read in the next chapter, I won't read it, but in, in verses 9 to 11, it says they also began to plot to kill Lazarus because people were coming to believe because of him. So they wanted him dead as well. So let me just conclude and ask, where are you? Are you a believer? 
Listen, none of us have the categories to process this. Nobody in this room can process what this tells us happened. Of all the great claims today to signs and wonders and miracles, nobody claims to raise a four-day-old, I don't know how to put it, a person who's been dead for four days and buried for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that you would see the glory of God? Here he is standing as king, standing as Lord, and it's like he says to death, I triumph over you, I defy you. And Lazarus coming forth is a sign. It's a sign that shows what Jesus will do at the end of the age. When those in their tombs will rise to meet him in the air. This was just the first instance of many that will come later. Statistics tell us that every week a million people in the world die. 10,000 people an hour, that's 56 million people a year die. Regardless of how far our medicine and technology advance, nobody does this. Nobody raises somebody from the dead after four days. This is the great physician. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. I want to state something that if, that if you're thinking this, I hope so because to me this is, the, this is the elephant in the room. And that is, why doesn't John interview Lazarus after this? Don't we all have... What did he go through? Lazarus, tell us what happened. Tell us what it was like. What was it like after you died? What was it like? There's not a word of that. There's not a word. Now, is it because, was it because John, the gospel writer, was not curious? I don't think that's it. Uh, was it because Lazarus couldn't speak? No, that's not it. From all indication, he could speak. Uh, he lived for a while late, and, you know, he, he eventually died again. We don't know how much longer, but, but for a while he, he, he lived, months or years. So what's going on? Why did he not interview Lazarus? I mean, every CNN reporter in the Middle East would have been all over this thing. Every, who would you have wanted to talk to? Lazarus. He's the main character, but not in John's eyes. Who's the main character? Jesus. That's why I think he doesn't interview Lazarus. That's why he doesn't even include anything Lazarus might have said. Because the emphasis is on the one who did it, on Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Some of you perhaps are like that observer who watched it. Maybe you believed. Maybe today you're a skeptic and you can't explain it. I would urge you to err on the side of saying... It looks like Jesus is the Messiah. I would lean toward that. Y'all know who Christopher Hitchens is, the atheist that writes so many books now and is on TV. You know, he's got cancer. He's dying. I read that this morning for the first time. You know what struck me? He said, and it's, this, is, this is his attitude, but it's very revealing. He said, if I begin, if, he said, if you people see me make a deathbed conversion to Christianity... He said, you'll know the cancer has reached my brain at that point. That's that side of him that you typically hear. But you know what he followed it up with? He said, but I would ask that y'all pray for me. Doesn't that tell you something? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Come to Christ as your Savior and King. Receive Him, and He can give you 
eternal and abundant life. We're going to end with a prayer. We're going to sing this prayer. We introduced it last week. It's from the collection of Puritan prayers called Valley of Vision. Bob Coughlin took one of those prayers and put it to music. So I invite you to turn to the back of the worship folder. You've got um, the words. We're going to sing all three verses since we learned it last week as you remain seated. blessing from God. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.